0: Go ahead and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter eight, please. <clears throat> Romans chapter eight. Eight. I'll. Um, our text is verses fourteen through seventeen. I'll start reading in verse 12. <clears throat> this is God's word; it contains no errors in the original language in it which was given, in which it was given, which is, uh, in this case, Greek. Uh, and it remains to you and me. The authoritative word of God in faithful translations such as the one from which I am reading. Listen carefully to what God is saying here. Verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But... If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption, as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we need your help at this time, I especially, but uh, all of us here need your help. Lord, for if you, Holy Spirit, do not illumine our minds, <clears throat> uh, this is merely gibberish, what we have just read. Uh, we do not naturally understand the things of God, uh, they are spiritually appraised, And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to enable us to appraise them. Would you please grant me unction as I preach? Would you please minister to your people? And would you please glorify yourself through what is said? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, I think most of you children might know this, but I'm not sure if all of you do. Let's see where the... I'm trying to see who's back there. All right, let's see all the kids' faces. Oh, someone's out. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, Dr. Fearing, sitting in the back, and Mrs. Fearing, who sits up here and plays the piano for us, uh, they have some grandchildren. And one of their grandchildren is a little girl named Raina. I don't know. Perhaps you've met Raina. It's possible you've met her. She was here, what, three four weeks? Two or three weeks? Two weeks two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. She was here two weeks ago. She's, uh, what, eight, nine? Eleven. Eleven. Shows you what I know. Um, she's 11 years old, and so you may have seen her here. But uh, Raina is the daughter of uh, Dr. Kirk and Miss Lisa's son, Ross, and his wife. And they have Raina as their daughter-in-law, as as their daughter, rather. And Emily's the daughter-in-law. Anyway. But Raina was not born to Miss Emily. Raina was born to another lady. But Raina was adopted by Miss Emily and Mr. Ross a few years ago. She was adopted. I've told you about my nephew. I have a little nephew. He's not little. What am I saying? He's grown up. Uh, I have a nephew who also was adopted. And he's uh, he's almost out of high school now. Did you know that if you're a Christian, children, you were adopted? If you're a Christian, you're adopted. You may not know that, but it's true. What does it mean to be adopted? Okay, when a couple adopts a child, they take a child who was not born into their family, like Raina was not, like my uh, nephew Nick was not, and whose mother and father were not able to take care of that child. And that child is adopted by another couple and becomes their child, just as much as a son or daughter that is actually born uh, physically in that family. And you are not adopted in that way, OK? You children here are all where uh, your mother gave birth to you, uh, so you're not adopted. You are naturally children in your family. But there, if you're a Christian, you are spiritually adopted by God. You're spiritually adopted by God. And that's a beautiful doctrine. And this passage is about adoption, spiritual adoption. And we're going to talk about what that means for you and for me as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, what it would mean for you if you became a Christian. Three things we're going to look at this morning from this passage. We're first going to focus on uh, the nature of our adoption as Christians. Then we're going to look at the pledge of our adoption as Christians. And finally, we're going to look at the privileges of our adoption as Christians. First of all, the nature of our adoption as Christians. You and I are sons and daughters of God if we are Christians. We were made children of God by this phenomenon called adoption that this passage that we're looking at here speaks of. The Shorter Catechism, we read the, uh, we, West, we read the Westminster Confession of Faith, that chapter on adoption just a moment ago, a short chapter, but nonetheless uh, quite a bit more expansive than the Shorter Catechism. But the Shorter Catechism, for those of you that know it, and if you don't, you should, need to be studying your catechism questions and learning those and memorizing those, Scripture first, but secondarily, we need to, um, we, we strongly recommend that you um, remember and learn uh, catechism questions because it's great theology uh, and it'll help you to understand your Bible much better. But the shorter catechism question on adoption says that adoption is an an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. And sons there doesn't just mean males. It means males and females. But if you're a Christian, you have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Of God, you gotta hear that part. The almighty maker of everything that is. You're his child, his beloved child, if and only if you are a Christian. You were a member, not not only are you a child of God, but you are a member of God's family if you are a Christian. Once adopted by God at the moment when you were born again, you became a full-fledged member of a spiritual family. This is what I was talking about a moment ago. You're you're spiritually adopted uh, children into God's family, into a spiritual family. And you, as a member of that family, um, enjoy the same rights, the same privileges, and the same standing that you would have, that you would have had you never been born a sinner and estranged from God. But the truth is, we were all, born is the wrong word, conceived, we were all conceived uh, as sinners and estranged from God. And The only right that we have at that point in time, prior to our God showing mercy to us and grace to us, is the right to go to hell. That's that's what justice requires, is that we all go to hell for eternity, because we are all rebels against God. We're conceived that way. But the moment that God gets a hold of our hearts and shows us that we are under his curse and and are liable to his justice and all that that means and how we've offended God. And the moment we get, God gets a hold of us and we realize that and we feel awful and we realize we need salvation, we need God to have mercy upon us, and we're born again and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, at that moment, all the rights and privileges and standing are ours that as if we had never sinned and as if we were native members of God's family, which is really what Adam was before the fall. He was already a son by nature until he fell. And we obtain all those rights and privileges and that standing as if we had never, ever offended God by our sin. Once you were And I, all of us, were children of wrath. Paul tells us that in Ephesians uh, and Romans, and we learn it elsewhere. We are are conceived as children of wrath uh, at the moment we come into being, but through the converting work of God the Holy Spirit, we became children of God. You did, I did. If If you're a Christian here today, God is your father, and Jesus is your elder brother as it were, and other believers in this room and in other churches in this community and in other churches in other states and countries around the world and continents are your spiritual brothers and sisters, transcends these walls and this denomination, hope you all realize that. and that we are all members of one family and brothers and sisters of one another is a truth that I know is overlooked in all too many quarters of the church these days. We tend to forget that other Christians, even Christians with whom we disagree, sometimes significant areas, but there are our brothers and our sisters in Christ if they are looking to Him alone to save them and to be not only their Savior but the Lord of their life. They are children of God just as much as we are and we are brothers and sisters and we may disagree but we are to be loving in our dealings with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the problem is, because this doctrine is so neglected, one of the reasons, that's probably one of the reasons we see so much unloving behavior in the church these days, including Presbyterian circles. We forget that the person who we have a difference of opinion on regarding the cessation of the gifts, perhaps, or baptism... Or if worship is a brother or sister, if they love Jesus and are trusting Jesus. And yes, we can disagree with them, but we've got to do it respectfully and lovingly. And the church needs to hear that and be reminded of that. You and I need to be reminded of that given the tremendous importance of a believer's justification, and we rightly emphasize that in Reformed circles, medieval church lost that doctrine, and the Reformation recovered it, Praise the Lord for it. It's It's an enormously important doctrine. But given its tremendous importance, it would be easy for us to assume that justification itself was the ultimate purpose of God in sending Jesus to earth and to the cross. That Jesus did what he did in his life and his death in order that our sins might be paid for and forgiven and we might be declared righteous in the sight of God on account of the reckoning, um, The crediting of Jesus' perfect righteousness to our moral account. That's what justification is. And he did that. And you'd think, well, that's it. There's nothing more important than that. But you know what? Biblically, this text here makes the point, and others as well. The justification of you and me, as important as it is, and it's extremely important, was not the ultimate purpose for which Jesus' incarnation and cross work came about. The ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal, if you will, of Christ's redemptive work was reconciliation of two estranged parties, God and the sinner whom he wished to save. And that reconciliation is what allows God to relate to us as a loving father rather than as an angry judge, which would otherwise be the case. And that reconciliation brings about uh, a creation of this father-son, father-child relationship. And that reconciliation was to be manifested in our adoption into his heavenly family and is manifested in our adoption into his heavenly family. And so justification, you see, is a means to that end. That we might relate to God in a new way rather than uh, uh, paralyzing fear because of God's judgment, which unbelievers should have, sadly often don't, but rather than relating to him that way, the believer who is covered in the blood of Christ and has the righteousness of Jesus imputed to him, relates to him as familially, as a child to a loving, gracious, tender father. There are ways in which physical and spiritual adoption are similar, but there are also ways in which they are dissimilar. Physical adoption, in, in physical adoption, an adopted child doesn't acquire any personality traits or tendencies from his adoptive parents at the point when he's adopted. That's not the case for spiritual adoption, is it? Even though, as children of God, we were adopted into God's family rather than being born into it as sinners, Um, but we have been adopted, but we still acquired something of of our adoptive father's likeness the moment he adopted us. We began at that point when we were born again to be like, to start to be like our father. Morally speaking, because the seed of God's moral character of his holiness was planted in you and me on that day, because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son and of the Father came in to you if you're a Christian, if you truly became a Christian, And that seed who is a person came into you. And he's holy. And he will over time make you holy. More and more and more. And if you say you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian. I I, I prayed a prayer back when I was uh, eight years old at church, or I I got baptized, or I, I, um, whatever, I read my Bible. That's what Christians do, right? If you say that, but there's no fruit, there's no evidence of moral change in your life It doesn't matter what you say. You're not a Christian. Because a true Christian who has truly embraced the Jesus of the Bible savingly, a true Christian produces fruit, spiritual fruit, that is to say good works, and putting off of sinful things that dishonor God in your life and putting on of those things that honor him. So, is there a fruit in your life? If you claim to be a Christian, is there fruit in your life? Would the people who know you best say there's Christian fruit in your life? So, we see the nature of adoption that we are sons and daughters of God and members of His holy family. Second, this passage teaches us the pledge of our adoption, about the pledge of our adoption. Verse 9 teaches us that if you're a Christian, you have God's Spirit dwelling in you. Now, I'm I'm referring back to uh, earlier in this chapter. You recall last time we were in Romans, we looked at verse 9. And verse 9, I'll read it for you, because I didn't read it a few moments ago. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And of course, the implicit is if he does belong to him, he does have the Spirit of Christ in him, the person who does truly belong savingly to Christ. And so if you are a Christian, you have God's spirit dwelling in you. Uh, The moment you were made, he was the one who made you spiritually alive to begin with so that you could believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are told in verses 13 and 14 that he now, if you are a Christian, he leads you. Again, I read it for you uh, starting in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation. Excuse me, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, and there's that sanctification that will necessarily come if you're, if you're genuinely, if the Spirit of God dwells in you as a Christian, if you are putting to, by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. Sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit. The Spirit is directing you, is changing you, and transforming you and me. And if he's not, he's not there. And we're unconverted. Regardless of what we or our church might say. Also, this Holy Spirit who dwells within you, if you're a Christian, is the same Holy Spirit who is also bearing witness to you that you're a child of God. Verse 15 makes that point. If you have not received a spirit of, no, excuse me, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Notice, Christians are not, to relate to God uh, with a spirit of fear. But you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That spirit of adoption within you and me causes us to refer to God with this intimate language of Father and to feel Uh, a filial love for God. Now, the spirit bearing witness, his witness bearing is not a direct, audible communique from God. You know, this kind of thing. Now, that's not to say he couldn't do that. But he doesn't. I don't think normally do that but this testimony this bear this this witness bearing um, is is a witness bearing that cannot be explained in words necessarily but it is one that is real and it is genuinely profitable for the believer even though it doesn't come in the form of words from heaven or in our heads. It is profitable. We need the Spirit to testify to us, to sometimes, perhaps more than others, that God hasn't abandoned us, that we haven't been forsaken, even though we deserve to be forsaken, that we haven't been um, disowned by God because we messed up. We need the Spirit's testimony, and he provides it. There are some ways in which he bears witness to us. A couple that I want to mention here, too. One is by pointing us. I think this is one of the ways in which he does this. He points us, leads us to the promises of God regarding our spiritual well-being in Christ, assuring us of the truthfulness of those promises that God has made and enabling us to continue to believe those promises and hope in those promises and cling to those promises. That's the Spirit giving us that ongoing um, clinging to the promises respecting our salvation in Christ and God's continuing forgiveness of us. A second way in which uh, the Spirit bears witness to us, is by imparting to us a growing assurance over time of God's love for us and forgiveness of us and commitment to us that will not end. Now, for some people, this assurance comes on fast and furious the moment they're converted. It never goes away. But for a lot of people, it doesn't. It's a process of being able to know that God forgives you even though you know how wretched you are. (laughs) And it's the Spirit who says, as you read the promises of God, yeah, they still apply to you. You're still forgiven. That's not going to change. And that's the Spirit who enables you to believe those promises and to, fi- and to feel the assurance that God hasn't abandoned you, even though um, we all deserve abandoning it on a regular basis. Also, the Holy Spirit not only... Um, does he dwell in us? And not only does he bear witness to us that we are sons of God, he is, we are told elsewhere in Scripture, uh, the seal of our adoption. Uh, Paul refers to this in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. I'm not going to go there, but I'm going to read the another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, that speaks of this truth, starting in verse 20. For as many as Maybe the promises of God in him, him being Christ Jesus. In him, they, the promises of God, notice, are yes. Wherefore also by him, by Jesus, is our amen to the glory of God through us. And then he says this, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us, and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. A seal in ancient times, uh, and even in modern times, is intended to testify to the authenticity of that which which it is placed upon. That's one of the functions of a seal, to testify to authenticity. And what the... Holy Spirit does, his sealing function is he seals the believer's faith in the promises of God and in Christ and he seals that faith he testifies, bears witness to the authenticity of that looking to Christ on the part of the believer for forgiveness it's the stamp, he is the stamp of God if you will testifying to you that your, your conversion is the real thing and not a forgery. A seal is also intended to guarantee the permanence of that upon which it is placed. Think of the seal that Pilate placed on Jesus' tomb. That seal was supposed to guarantee that that tomb was never disturbed, that that rock would never be moved. And if you did, the the hellacious fury of the Roman um, power would come down upon you. But of course, that seal didn't do its job. Praise the Lord. Another, the Holy Spirit, however, he actually does for us this work of guaranteeing the permanence of that to which he is applied. And that is our salvation. God's in the, in God the Holy Spirit uh, guarantees that our adoption by by God will never be invalidated it's permanent once you're a child of God you will never not be ever a child of God you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of adoption. You're in the family of God. God the Spirit dwells in you. That's the pledge of your adoption and mine. Finally, not only do we have we do we see the nature of the adoption, of our adoption and the pledge of our adoption in this passage, but we also learn of some of the privileges of our adoption in this passage. We are told uh, that we have, as Christians in Christ, free and unhindered access to the Father, to whom we are to pray, per the Lord Jesus' instructions in the Sermon on the Mount. We, never, we need never again approach God, the Father, with slavish fear in our hearts, Again, verse 15, he says just this. For you have not received a spirit of slavery. As a Christian, you are not enslaved anymore to sin, to death. We have access, without fear, to God. Why? Because there's nothing that is between us. There's no barrier. There's nothing. Sin has been taken out of the way. It has been utterly removed from the equation, from the relationship. God's wrath toward our sin has been forever appeased. His justice has been satisfied completely. And Christ has merited, earned God's favor toward you. And so he is favorable towards you forever. That's not true of you if you're not a Christian you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, who must be served as Lord and King and will be in a true believer's heart as well as trusted as Savior, you need Christ as your Savior and Lord in order for you to be able to have access to God without fear. Otherwise, you should be terrified of him. But if you know and understand that you need this Christ whom I've been preaching about, all you need to do is believe in him. Cling to him with faith in your heart. Say, Jesus, save me from my sins and, your, and the Father's wrath. And he will. But you must trust alone in him to save you. God will never condemn the believer in Christ. When we come to him, he will never condemn us. No matter what we've done. No matter what we've done. He won't. It's hard to believe sometimes, because you know what you've done. You know some of the things that you've thought, some of the things that you've said some of the ways you've acted. You know how deserving of condemnation you are if you're a Christian. The longer, you be, the longer you're a Christian, the more you know. But you're not condemned because Jesus was condemned in your stead. God loves you far more than any human father Does his children. He may be disappointed, yeah. He's disappointed, he's grieved, and there's, if you will, paternal displeasure that falls upon his children, but it's not condemnation, it's not wrath, it's fatherly displeasure, and it's designed to bring us to repentance when it comes. No, our Father is eager to restore fellowship with us when we've sinned if we will come to him contritely and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. You are free to come to him in prayer anytime you want to. And you know what? You should want to regularly. God is never too busy for you. Never, ever. I'm sometimes too busy for my children. Sad to say, God's not. You can and you should approach God as your father with the attitude of a little child. Though you may be a big, have lots of human responsibility and be a father and Maybe a very mature person people that other people look up to a person that other people look up to and um, hardly someone somebody that could be just described as childlike yet before God that's exactly the way you need to be Abba the term that we read there in verse 15 is a, the same term that Jesus got this God the Son used when he addressed his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Abba to his father. It's a term expressive of great intimacy and affection. And a, a decent translation, not perfect, but his daddy. Most all of you know that. But we're to come with that attitude in our heart that we're coming before our spiritual dad. Father. and we are coming for intimate time with him as we talk to him in prayer so free and unhindered access is one of the privileges mentioned in this passage verse 15 that of a child to his father and finally a second privilege is our inheritance we have an inheritance that belongs to us now that we've been adopted into God's family verse 17 speaks of it and if children, we are heirs, Paul says. If we are children of God, which we do are, if we have the Spirit dwelling in us, which we are, if we are trusting in Christ alone, we are heirs. We are people who have an inheritance awaiting us. That inheritance is glorification in heaven. Now, the inher- ultimately, the inheritance is God, as I make a point that point regularly. But it is also glorification in God's presence sharing in the, uh, the likeness of Jesus, as John speaks about over in his letter. Christ rewards us with a sinless existence. Praise the Lord for that, huh? We are glorified. We receive glorified bodies, ultimately, when Jesus comes and brings our body out of the grave, out of the dust, and we're told as again, we shall be like him in that day. And we see him as he is. And this inheritance of glorification and of God himself as our, as our uh, inheritance, these gifts cannot be taken from us. God will not disinherit you if you're a Christian because your sonship is not based on anything you did or I did, but on what Christ, what God through Christ did. You know, in, in the Roman world, and Paul is speaking to that audience, he's speaking to Romans, Roman Christians. In the Roman world, um, a natural-born son could be um, disowned and denied his inheritance by his father. He could disown a Natural born child, an adopted child could not be disowned. That's the way you've been adopted. Your inheritance cannot be taken from you. God will not do that. This means that you and I shall be preserved, body and soul, until the day that Christ returns to take us home to glory. Nothing, nothing will change that. Nothing. The devil himself can rant and rave all he wants to. Nothing can change that. All because you're adopted. By God. To be his child. Forevermore. Glorious doctrine, isn't it? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful thing you've done for us, sinners who don't deserve anything but your justice. Yet now we are sons, uh, royal sons of you, the God of the universe, our Father, our spiritual Dad. Would you please help us, Lord, to live as before? becomes our profession and becomes our privilege as your child, as your son, daughter. Lord, we need help in this. We we still have much of the old man that plagues us. We still look longingly at the uh, trinkets that the world holds before our eyes. And we are prone to acting unbecomingly would you please help us to? Would you please use our, our reminders of our of how privileged we are, and how blessed we are, and how kind you have been to us in adopting us into your holy family? Would you please use these thoughts to motivate us to walk away from the world's temptations? and to do what pleases and glorifies you. And Lord, if there's anybody here today that does not know you savingly, please remove any delusions that might be there. And would you please cause such an individual to flee to Jesus alone. We ask in his name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.